This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. On October the 4th, three scientists from Oxford, Harvard and Stanford signed a declaration in Great Barrington, warning that lockdowns are an ineffective way of dealing with COVID-19. The scientists then left to advise the White House coronavirus advisor, Scott Atlas, arguing that policy should aim for focused protection, shielding the vulnerable while letting others become infected. They wrote, Simple hygiene measures, such as hand washing and staying home when sick, should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. The declaration has now been signed by over 20,000 medical practitioners and scientists. There are some problems though. First, anyone can sign the form. A look through it reveals signatures from Johnny Bananas and the notorious serial killer Dr. Harold Shipman. But the so-called Great Barrington Declaration event was also hosted by a libertarian think tank funded by multimillionaires including the Koch brothers. But this doesn't immediately delegitimize their position. Another letter, signed by Professor Gupta, the epidemiologist from Oxford, said any objective should be framed more broadly than COVID itself. To place all weight on reducing deaths from COVID fails to consider the complex trade-offs that occur, one, within any healthcare system, and two, between healthcare society and the economy. Now, this is obviously true, and I'll return to it shortly. But what this really illustrates is that science is never just pure, objective, and neutral. Epidemiology here bleeds out into economics, politics, and societal issues more broadly. We all know that science can be politicised, but we don't talk enough about how science is actually always political. Trump has claimed that he's guided by science on COVID. And in the UK, Boris Johnson consistently remarks that the policy is following the science. Science is used as an apolitical justification that's meant to confer legitimacy on a position or policy. But science is never as neutral as it seems. It's made up of people with lives, goals, biases and agendas. It's both political in how it's carried out and political in how it's used. Modern science was a development of the Renaissance, but of course it didn't simply emerge from nowhere. It had its roots in social and political change. The Renaissance was a period of exploration, the European discovery of America, the expansion of European trade. This meant a need for new instruments and tools to direct ships, improve crafts and design more effective weapons. Take Isaac Newton, one of the fathers of modern science. He was born into this context. His contemporaries needed to better navigate the world. Canal and lock technology was improving, as was mining technology. What's important in this political and social context? Physics, dynamics, the flight paths of projectiles, understanding the tides and atmospheric pressure. 
Newton brought all of this together into a theory about physics. The writings of Descartes, Galileo and Hobbes, all giants of their time, are full of references to machines like clocks, lifting devices, craftsmanship, weights and scales. In short, there's a relationship between scientists and artisans, craftspeople, engineers and economic systems that push science in a particular direction and not another. Scientists' views are shaped by their values, their methodological choices and their visions of a future society. They're also directed by friendships, debates and their adversaries. Not only does science become political once it enters the public sphere, it already is political before it gets there. Now I know that once you've mentioned this group of people you've either lost the debate or gone on way too long, but the most obvious example of all of this is of course the Buddhists. No, I mean the Nazis. Or World War II in general. The amount of science that was a product of the war, planes, tanks, the atom bomb, medical advances, developments in communication, I mean the list is endless. And it's not that war speeds up scientific advances, it's that the term advance suggests a single direction. Science is pushed in different directions by the social and political contexts that guide it. So how do we make sense of this? The historian Hans-Jörg Ryberger divides scientific research into two. Technical things, these are answer-giving machines, things like instruments, technology, and objects of all kinds. Then there are epistemic things. These are things like bodies of knowledge, the relationships between people and groups, and the culture. These things provide the means for constructing certain questions and sometimes hiding others. In short, the way scientists do things is encoded. Their actions, like all of ours, are determined by outside forces. Science is never simply abstract. It's in symbiosis with things like computing, engineering, real-world problems. The philosopher Martin Heidegger described technology as in framing within a certain horizon so that scientists can see certain things and disregard others. The 20th century has been a period of unprecedented scientific and technological advances that has seen all of this largely sidelined. In the 50s, President Eisenhower worried about the way politics and science was becoming intertwined. He was concerned that public policy might become captive of a scientific technological elite. The 50s and 60s were a golden age of advances, but many were worried about an emerging scientific elite, a new priesthood where a new kind of royal court would emerge with scientists vying for power to advise politicians. So a question emerged, where does ultimate legitimacy in a democracy lie? With science or with public opinion? What if the two diverge? A president of Harvard, James Conant, a man who'd been involved in the Manhattan Project, realised that in a democracy, the general public simply had to have a basic understanding of science. 
He wrote, in a democracy, political power is widely diffused. National policy is determined by the interaction of forces generated and guided by hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of local leaders and men of influence. Eventually, within the limits imposed by public opinion, decisions of far-reaching importance are made by a relative few. Because of the fact that the applications of science play so important a part in our daily lives, matters of public policy are profoundly influenced by high technical scientific considerations. Some understanding of science by those in positions of authority and responsibility, as well as by those who shape opinion, is therefore of importance for the national welfare. Scientists and their research are often called upon to do different things by politicians and the media, who themselves are trying to do different things within a framework or a narrative that they're attempting to control. Scientists might try to, or be called upon to, confer legitimacy on a certain policy or position, persuade certain people, including the public, justify a delay or act in a certain way, justify avoiding doing something completely, support unpopular policies, provide evidence in a dispute. The list goes on. The sociologist Edward Shields has written that advisers are too frequently chosen, not so much because the legislators and officials want advice, as because they want apparently authoritative support for the policies they propose to follow. It's obvious that in complying with these desires, the legislators and officials are in collusion with the scientists to exploit the prestige that scientists have acquired for objectivity and disinterestedness. It's for this reason in Germany, for example, that scientists in commissions are selected in proportion to political party share of parliamentary seats. And Professor of Public Policy Paul Kearney has argued that scientists misunderstand the political world and should attempt to better understand it to give more effective advice. He says to look at smoking. Studies showed that smoking caused cancer in the 50s, but imagine an immediate ban on smoking inside public places then, taxing cigarettes at 500% and legislating for warnings on packages. This would have been impossible because smoking was so central to people's lives. It took decades of alliance building, challenging the tobacco industry and public campaigning to achieve this. Scientists might be able to speed up the process, but scientific research is not the same as presenting that research, and scientific evidence is not the same as public persuasion. Appeals to emotion, for example, can be more effective, as are photographs, anecdotes, poetry, capturing attention, so this is how science is political, along with a thousand other things I've missed out. So how do we make sense of this mess? Well, ultimately, the type of science that wins is the type of science that becomes hegemonic. Whoever scores the most points, makes the most coalitions, sells their advice in the best way. Hegemony is politically constructed collective will. What's clear is that what's important is not just the science, but how we talk about it, 
the culture, the media and the politics around it. As Professor of Science and Technology Studies Ulrich Felt describes it, the central questions are, who has a voice to make legitimate knowledge claims? Who defines what matters? Or who participates in imagining and shaping the future? These questions open up choreographies that are never simply given or innocent. It means looking at disputed knowledge, dissident voices, alternatives. Certain cultures, societies and social groups will be likely to highlight certain solutions and neglect others. It means looking comparatively, giving a voice to the voiceless. Let's return to Barrington briefly. The declaration is short and essentially argues against lockdowns. This in itself is fine, as many are now arguing that lockdowns are only meant to buy time and protect public services. Lockdowns obviously do havoc to economies, civil liberties, mental health, education, the list goes on. But Barrington, instead of taking the nuanced approach which thinks about all of this, takes just one of them, the economy, and ignores much else. It doesn't mention the importance of test, trace and isolate, which is the absolute fundamental key to all of this, until a vaccine comes along, that is. And Barrington's justification for their strategy is also herd immunity, which is based on almost no science and ignores the damage the virus does even to the healthy, the young, to minorities and groups who don't have good access to healthcare, and completely ignores the effects of the overburdening of public services. It also, by the way, doesn't make any suggestions or recommendations on how you deal with something like this. Liverpool's intensive care units are 95% full uh, because of COVID, and they've just gone into local lockdown because public services are becoming overwhelmed. As most have argued, there might be a slight divide. Yes, full lockdowns are ineffective and damaging. But the vast majority deny that letting the virus run its course is a good strategy. And a quick glance at who's backing Barrington is enough to see who it suits. In short, I think Professor Felt's approach sums this up. Who has a voice to make legitimate knowledge claims? Who defines what matters? Or who participates in imagining and shaping the future? These questions open up choreographies that are never simply given or innocent. In a democracy, there should be a fundamental commitment to the lives, health and dignity of those alive right now, not in some imagined future generation's economy, which means a careful analysis of who is affected, who is helped and who is burdened by all of this. Hey everyone, I feel very lucky to be able to say that I'm finally at the point where I can commit full time to making these videos. Um, it's a great honour to be able to do that. I absolutely love doing it. I'm going to make two or three videos a month and continue to improve the quality and the research and do a few more experiments and chats and rambles in between. But it is a time consuming job. It's a full time job and it is just me. So unfortunately, right now, Patreon is still the only way that then and now 
survives. So if you get any value from these videos whatsoever, then please consider pledging a dollar or two dollars on Patreon. If you pledge five dollars or ten dollars or more even, I will add your name to the credits, I will put scripts and the audio, and at some point the videos out early for Patreons only. So if there's anything you'd like to see there, then please let me know. But if you can't afford that right now, then of course it's enough to just press like, subscribe, share, and remember to click that bell to be notified to new videos. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time. I'll see you next time.